5G, the latest wireless communication technology, has started to change how agencies think about networks, both from a physical infrastructure standpoint and for how it can enhance service to employees and constituents. My next guest is at the forefront of this thinking at the Veterans Affairs Department. Dr. Tom Osborne is director of VA's National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation. It's a mouthful, and he joins me now. Dr. Osborne, good to have you on. Hey, thanks, buddy. Good to be here. And not to be confused with Dr. Oz, who's a political figure that's running for office somewhere across the country. Well, tell us what yeah, happens at the Collaborative Healthcare Innovation Center. Just set the table for us. So our center is really focused on delivering the best, most advanced healthcare possible for our veterans and to put VA in the driver's seat. You know, in doing so, we also hope that these advances that we do for our veterans, the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States, will also potentially help others around our entire country and perhaps around the world. So it's a really exciting place to be. And as a doctor, you were a medical doctor. You didn't get a Ph.D. in 16th century Flemish art here. You actually practice medicine. So I guess that is important to have in running a collaborative healthcare innovation center where you may not be touching patients personally these days. Well, I do still practice. I'm a very busy guy. I got a lot to juggle. So that really does help inform the things that we do. And we have a pretty diverse portfolio, but our why is really to advance healthcare and deliver the best care possible for our veterans. But, you know, sometimes we fill the gaps that we have with the technologies and sometimes with collaborations with other partners around the VA, other government agencies and with industry. That's sort of the what and the details of it. But the what is really about delivering the best care possible for our veterans. Well, how does 5G and network communications and all of that figure into this? Historically, one of the things that we've done in healthcare that's quite valuable is we've collected a lot of data. And in particular, most places have gone to an electronic healthcare system. So we have tons of data. It's an amazing resource. But converting that data into information, knowledge, and wisdom, that's something that'll bring great value and something that we can do more of. So like other teams, we've been doing a lot of this in retrospective analytics, looking at historical data to get insights on a population level. But the next frontier is bringing value by converting that into individualized personal care. And that's what we're really focused on. And that's what this particular infrastructure, the 5G infrastructure, will help us do more of. And how will it help? Just by being faster or allowing simpler or simplified network architectures? What does it actually do for you? I mean, it's a number on a telephone, but otherwise, I don't think we've seen a lot from it. No, that's a great question. So 5G, you know, it's an infrastructure, right? And in and of itself, an infrastructure is, you know, a resource. It's not going to do anything by itself, but it enables us to do things that we couldn't do before. So it allows us to move more data faster. Now, okay, think about diagnostic image. It's a big study, like as far as megabytes. So you have a lot of images and it can be up to gigabyte. And then you want to bring in other data to process that. You want to bring in genomics or EHR data or even sensor data. All of a sudden, that's a ton of information. If you want to move that through a system to then process it and bringing that insight back to the point of care, if you don't have big pipes to move all that stuff, it's going to be a, a major challenge. And so having 5G and in particular cloud computing adjacent or you know a component of that allows us to do things that we maybe could only imagine before. 
And, you know, that's sort of the place that we're seeing. We're seeing this will allow us to do things we could never have imagined before in some ways and do things we've only hoped to do in the past. And how are you noticing your IT people are actually making this happen? What are they doing differently? Most of the work that we've done in this space, well, it's been collaborative with so many people across VA, many different teams uh, and services, but also with our industry partners. And so we have a large collaboration between Verizon, Microsoft, and Metavis. It's a collaboration that our team is leading. And a lot of the work we're doing is to work with those partners and their expertise and and really amazing uh, engineers to bring this technology to our veterans that wouldn't otherwise be possible. So it's all about connecting the dots and, and bringing people who know things and complement each other. We're speaking with Dr. Tom Osborne. He's director of the National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation at the Veterans Affairs Department. And it sounds as if this kind of research into better health care is an analytic exercise, almost like baseball is, looking at large data sets and seeing, as you mentioned, how it comes down to the individual. What are the topics you're looking at? Because medical research is often devoted to a single disease, you know, a single malady, and there's tons of research that may go on at multiple places there. What types of research specifically does the center do, and how does it fit in between all of the individualized medicine research that's going on? So a lot of the work that we do is in the category of translational work. And translational is just a fancy word that sort of says, you know, taking a lot of scientific work from the bench or in a lab to the bedside. And so bringing the scientific insights to the care of patients so it can improve outcomes. Now, data is a big part of this. And one of the things that we see is an underutilized resource that we can leverage to better care for patients. And what we've been doing quite a bit of, we have a pretty diverse portfolio, but what we've been doing quite a bit of is understanding what the historical data has to tell us. And that kind of, if you know the past very well and the trajectory of things, then that can tell you what might happen in the future so you can be more proactive in things. So we're talking in the category of predictive analytics and clinical decision support. So if you have an idea of what might be going on with a patient because you have like really great processing and analytics, then you can come to the diagnosis faster. And when you do that faster, more effectively and efficiently, then you can get to the treatment quicker and you can provide better care. Some of the things that we've been doing in that category also involve looking at things in different ways than you would have been able to do otherwise. For example, being able to process really big data files such as diagnostic images in a new way, turning the two-dimensional images into a three-dimensional hologram that then you can manipulate and look at at any angle can help you understand the complexity of human anatomy and physiology in ways that is difficult or uh, not efficient otherwise. And so not only is it beneficial for teaching and training, but also for pre-surgical planning. And we're working diligently to use this system for operative guidance. In other words, to be able to see what you're doing with greater fidelity and have safer, faster, more effective procedures and care. So what you're innovating with then is things that exist as possible remedies for a given patient situation to distinguish that from when you say bench 
to bedside. Often something works great in a lab, but then there's 10 years of FDA testing before you can use it. You're not talking about those innovations, but rather innovating with what we already have in the toolkit, but it's hard sometimes for providers to know everything that they could possibly do with the given patient in front of them. Yeah, you bring up a lot of great points, Tom. I mean, like we were talking about earlier on, there's a ridiculous amount of data. And for current healthcare, there's just not enough time and enough providers to take care of the patients who need the care. And so if we can help providers by processing some of that data, collecting it, making it easier to assess and analyze, then they're going to be able to concentrate on other things instead of, you know, searching through the record and trying to do the calculations on things. So that's a big part of it. That's iterative, like you were describing. That's sort of improving on the existing system. But there's other things that we're doing that are totally like cutting edge and and pioneering, like being able to use this system, for example, augmented reality and taking someone's images to put those images on top of a patient virtually If you can do that, then you can have three-dimensional X-ray vision. We've never done that before. Three-dimensional real-time X-ray vision, which is profound in so many ways, not only to understand what's going on, but also to guide procedures and diagnoses. So there's other things that we're doing, quite frankly, that's also like science fiction. I'll give you an example. You know, um, if you're a Star Wars fan, you might remember a scene when Princess Leia was projected by R2-D2, and she's like... Obi-Wan, you're the only one that can help with. I saw that, you know, like many people, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's cool, but that's science fiction, that'll never happen. Well, we've been able to do that. We've been able to do that with the advanced technology that we have, and that has tremendous implications for healthcare. And in fact, we did it a little bit better than Star Wars, because in Star Wars, it was was a recording, and we've been able to do it real time. So we can project a three-dimensional hologram of someone who's standing in one room and put them into another room, which, you know, if someone's in isolation because of infectious disease protocols, such as in COVID, and you can virtually project someone into that room, all of a sudden you've made that care and interaction more humanistic than it would have been before. So technology, instead of distancing people, brings people closer together. In some ways, it's almost like telemedicine advanced to an astonishing degree, sounds like. Exactly. Yes. And definitely it's huge implications for telemedicine as well. Yeah. So if the person is in one room and the person looking at the hologram, the provider is in another room, that other room could be on the other coast or maybe even in another hemisphere. That's exactly right. I love the fact that you said that because now we're talking about democratizing care because there is a digital divide and there's also a care divide. You know, People who live very close to an academic center where there's tons of really smart people focused on a particular topic, they can get a different level of care than someone who's living in a remote community that maybe only has access to a a generalist that is doing their best to pull it all together. With this type of technology, you can have a capacity that you can bring people efficiently virtually into a different location and help other people out. I mean, imagine, imagine you're in a surgery, right? You're the only surgeon in town and you're focused as a generalist, but all of a sudden something, some emergency comes in that's only a specialist can handle. You're in over your head. You would love to have someone help you there, but you're going to do your best. All of a sudden you can use this technology and you can have the world-renowned experts in that niche little field from anywhere around the world come in real time, be with you, see what you're seeing, 
and point with holograms exactly what you need to cut, what you not need to cut, all of a sudden you're providing care everywhere at a more equal level than it ever was before. So that's super exciting for us. So that veteran in deep Appalachia can have access to the same care as the one who might be in the upper west side of Manhattan. Exactly right. And that's really important for us at VA because the majority of our patients live in rural communities. But quite frankly, geez, a lot of people now are living in rural communities because they can, you know, my gosh, the pandemic has told us that we don't necessarily have to be tethered to a big corporate headquarters. And so this is relevant not only for veterans, not only for the U.S., but quite frankly, the world, because there's lots of people all over the place who need this type of care and just don't have access to it because of the place that they happen to be born in. Dr. Tom Osborne is director of the National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation at the Veterans Health Administration. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Don. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.